blessing to see everybody here. We're um, excited to share that we celebrated a very special Thanksgiving on November 29th. It marked the one-year anniversary of the day that we left North Carolina to fly to Southern California. So we were just um, thinking about that reality, thinking about just the, the tremendous blessing that it's been, uh, the love that we've received from everybody in the church, and the great privilege that we have just to serve Christ together. We're just so extremely grateful. And we were talking about it, and we were just like, wow, it seems like that was five years ago. And we, we began to think about it, and it had more to do with the reality that I think so much took place over the course of the year. If you'll recall, our church moved four times. Um, we, we, uh, our first service was down at uh, Alamitos, if you'll remember, down in Garden Grove, and then we transitioned to um, our space in the Praise Chapel building, our own space, and then we got the shocking news of the building being red-tagged because of the fire alarms and fire sprinklers, and then we transitioned to Knott's Berry Farm for about a month, spent our Easter there. That was a good time. So many encouraging things happened, though. It was just a blessing to me. I, I continue to be thankful for the servants in this church, how everybody just worked together as a team to overcome those challenges. And then our service times were changing, and then we had to move back to the Praise Chapel building, and we had an 8.30 a.m. service. For those who remember that experience, um, a little bit earlier than, than normal, and then we had the opportunity, the Lord graciously opened up uh, the, this building and we've moved here. So um, not only are we thankful for all that the Lord did last year, we're um, thankful for all that he's going to do this year. And for the record, we don't anticipate moving one time. Right, elders? We're, I think we're staying put. Lord willing, we're going to stay in this building. And as was mentioned in the announcements, you know, we've been in here now um, going on our sixth month. And there's still some things that we're, we're going to do, some improvements that will be made. For the most part, the, the major areas are set up, but we still have some walls to be painted and um, some other um, cosmetic things and other ministry things that are going to uh, make improvements. So anyway, just very, very thankful on behalf of Victoria and our kids. We're just um, delighted that we have another year to serve the Lord together and are excited about what 2015, and it sounds strange to say it, 2015 are going to bring. Well, I invite you to open up your Bibles to Titus chapter 3 this morning. And if you're here with us for the first time, our church is currently studying two books of the Bible. During the week, we have the opportunity to go through First uh, John in our care groups. And then we've spent the last... A um, few months going through the book of Titus, and today we're officially moving into the final chapter and the final section of Titus. And before we set up camp there, I thought it would be good for us just to consider this last section, kind of look at the campground, so to speak, get familiar with the, the, the layout, and gain the sense of where things are located in this section. If you'll look there, verses 1 and 2, which we'll be studying today, focus on our public testimony to governing authorities. And this comes at a fitting time in light of the riots that have been taking place in Ferguson, Missouri, and throughout the rest of the country. And 
since Christianity celebrates Christ as king, historically, there has always been and will always continue to be a tension that exists uh, politically, especially surrounding the testimony of faithful Christians. And our passage today provides specific instruction for us on how we can be prepared to respond to such tension. Starting in verse 3, the Apostle Paul highlights our human depravity, which sets up a contrast to the grace of God through the gospel in verses 4 through 7. And just like our previous section that emphasized the grace of God in our salvation and sanctification, the end goal will be God getting glory through good works that flow out of those redemptive realities. And then we come to verse 8, which features again the significance of those good deeds that flow out of those doctrinal realities before verse 9 provides instruction on how to deal with controversies and disputes about the law. Christians are not to get distracted in wrangling about extra-biblical things. Here's splitting definitions of words and so on, for it disheartens people and it's unprofitable. And then verses 10 and 11 will be an interesting study, uh, which talks specifically about two-step church discipline. Most of us are familiar with the four-step approach to church discipline that's laid out for us in Matthew 18, but there are situations where if somebody is being so factious within the church that biblical discipline can be reduced to two steps. And so we'll look at that in greater detail once we get there. Well, let's uh, read our passage together to get familiar with the context, keeping in mind that our focus today is going to be on the opening two verses, but I'm going to read Titus 2, 1 through 11 from the NAS, which says this. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly, through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies, and strife, and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. Well, we live in a world that is structured by government and laws, and depending on the country, some are more structured than others. The law represents authority in our lives. And it comes with those who serve in positions of leadership. And like it or not, sometimes 
people are thankful for it, while oftentimes people in the world feel restricted by it. And there are practical ways that this reality of government and those in leadership affect our daily lives. Federal and state politicians are in place to serve the citizens within our country and respective states by passing or rejecting laws that are intended to help and serve the people while trying to promote peace. Police officers are in place to protect and to serve, right? They're there to, as law enforcers to enforce the laws of the land. The IRS is in place to make sure that people pay their taxes and that the money is directed through the proper channels. City officials are in place to make sure that people get buildings and business permits and that certain laws and codes are enforced all the way down to the local level. And the implications of these governing realities are huge when we consider how they impact all of our lives. And so it should come as no surprise that when we, we come to God's word that there is a place that specifically instructs us on how we can respond. How we can glorify him in the process with our response to this reality that he's decreed. These governing authorities that he's put in place in our lives. And the title of today's message is, Your Seven Reminders to Be a Godly Citizen. And in Titus 3, verses 1 and 2, God gives you and I seven reminders so that your testimony as a citizen can glorify him. And though the Apostle Paul is writing this letter directly to Titus, it's understood that it will be shared with everyone in the church. And in the same way that Paul opened up with a command to Titus at the beginning of chapter 2 when he said, keep speaking the things which are fitting for sound doctrine, and then there was an imperatival force that came with the ensuing instructions, the same thing is going to happen right here in chapter 3. It's going to open up with a command, and then the ensuing instructions that are given to the church come with, with a force. They come with, with a responsibility. Look at the beginning of verse 1 as it starts off right away with the command to Titus. It says this, remind them. And then Paul provides seven reminders for believers that make up our sermon outline for us. First, to be subject to rulers and to authorities. Second, to be obedient. Third, to be ready for every good deed. Fourth, to malign no one. Fifth, to be, re- to be peaceable. Sixth, to be gentle. Seventh, showing every consideration for all men. And this opening command in the Greek is literally saying continually remind them or make it your habit to keep on reminding them. And then it's followed by the plural pronoun them. And this is pointing back specifically to them, the instructions of the people that just received additional instruction, the people in the church back in Titus 2, right? The testimony, those four age groups, which pretty much covered everybody in the church. That's the them that's being talked about. And one commentator wisely stated, quote, we never outgrow the ministry of reminder. And much of a pastor's energy will be spent on the ministry of reminding the flock, end quote. And the reminders come in many forms. And if we look back to even what we received last week in Titus 2.15, in that verse, sometimes it comes in the form of instruction. Sometimes it comes in the form of strong exhortation. Sometimes it comes in the form of warning 
or admonishments. The subject of Titus 2.15, these things points us both forwards and backwards in this letter. And there is no natural break in Paul's flow of thought as we learned last week. So in a sense, what we're receiving in this final chapter of Titus could serve as instruction, exhortations, and or admonitions, depending on the believer's responsiveness. And Paul opted to use the command, remind them, which indicates that these are things that have already been shared previously. And the verb used here is a compound word made up of under and remember. And so it conveys this sense to put them under remembrance or under the weight of this reminder. And the reminders that follow are like a machine gun shooting rapid fire. They come one after another. So brace yourselves for impact as our hearts are going to serve as the target. Reminder number one, make it your testimony to be submissive. Look back at the beginning of verse one. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities. First reminder is to be subject or submissive, depending on your English translation. It's a command that should be very familiar to us because wives were called to submit to their husbands in Titus 2.5, and we talked about it there. And then employees are called to submit to their employee, or employees are called to submit to their employers, and we saw that in Titus 2.10. And we, we learned before that this is a military term. And it's used to describe the ranks of soldiers arranging themselves under the leadership of their commander. And here Paul makes it clear that submission is not the lot of a few, but that everyone lives under authority and must practice submission. And in the Greek, it demands continual action. And so it could be translated, make it your testimony. I know I've said make it your habit in the past. I'm not a real big fan of habit, um, Make it your testimony to submit yourself. And you'll notice that I added this for each of these points. Because the present tense of all these verbs in the Greek carries this idea of us doing these things continually. Now notice two words that come after our our verb. These are the direct objects that God is calling you and I to submit to. We are to submit ourselves or subject ourselves to rulers, to authorities and these words are frequently used by the apostle paul um, in other places eight out of eleven to be exact focus on unseen spiritual beings at work like in ephesians 3 10 it says the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places but there is another place where paul uses these terms in a similar vein and i want to invite you to turn there turn there Turn to Romans uh, chapter 13. Romans chapter 13 employs these two terms together throughout the passage. And one commentator shares this about Romans 13 verses 1 through 7. He says they should be read as a fuller commentary of Paul's intent in Titus 3, 1 and 2. And so let's read it together, together and note the usage of both authorities and rulers starting in verse one it says this every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities 
For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. They have opposed, they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them. Tax to whom tax is due. Custom to whom custom. Fear to whom fear. Honor to whom honor. In this passage, Paul mentions seven reasons why why people, including believers, are under divine obligation to honor and submit to human government. And it starts in verse 1, first by the governing authorities which exist, and it states that they're established by God. And as if we need any more reason to obey after that, right? That would be enough. God established it. We, we were his servants. We, we bend the knee to him. Do, do we really need anything more? But God graciously provides more explanation. Second, the person who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, which verse 2 affirms. God has ordained the laws of the government through his decreed will. And some laws don't honor him, and we're going to talk about how to handle our response to such laws when we study our second reminder. Third, verse 2 also reveals that those who oppose such authority will receive condemnation upon themselves. And condemnation can also be rendered judgment. Okay, So speaking to believers right here, it, it means that we're going to be judged for disobeying. It doesn't mean condemnation like sent to hell condemnation. We, we can't, we're not going to lose our salvation. That's not even possible. But it does mean the potential loss of eternal reward due to our disobedience. Fourth, government is designed to restrain evil. It serves as a deterrent. And according to verse 3, it is not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Punishment for breaking the law in the form of harsh fines and imprisonment deters many evil acts, and we get that. I was thinking about this the other day when I was driving around, and I, I saw some trash out in the street and it caught my attention and then I was thinking about the reality of how little trash that we really see considering millions and millions of people live right here together in in Los Angeles and what's the reason for that right it's against the law to litter right there's um, it, it functions as a deterrent so that people if that law didn't exist trust me Right? We all know that things would look a lot differently. Fifth, 
Government is divinely designated to promote the good of individuals of society. And verse 4 calls it a minister of God to you for good. It provides structure and organization that brings order to society and serves a good purpose. Number six, it also is divinely empowered to punish wrongdoers. Verse 4 even uh, references capital punishment when it mentions the sword as an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. And lastly, seventh, for believers, it's necessary to be in subjection to government, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. And this is spelled out for us in verses five through seven. It involves paying taxes and following the legal customs while at the same time serving as a testimony to the watching world. So the context in both Romans 13 and Titus 3 are referring to governing rulers and authorities in the secular environment. So what does submission to these authorities look like? Does it simply mean paying our taxes on time? Or is there more? Submission involves being obedient So there is some overlap with the application that will be developed under our second reminder. Again, God's giving us seven reminders in Titus 3, 1 and 2 so that our testimony as a citizen can glorify him. The first reminder is for us to be submissive. Your second reminder is this. Make it your testimony to be obedient. Look at verse 1 as it continues. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, and then it says this, to be obedient. And again, this reminder is in the present tense, demanding a continual lifestyle of obedience. And the word is used only here by Paul. It's comprised of the roots to listen or to obey and the word ruler that was just used in earlier in the in the verse. And so it has a specific emphasis upon obedience to authority. So set alongside the first reminder, this describes the Apostle Paul's intent when he demanded submission to earthly governing authorities. To live in submission to governing authorities is to live in obedience to them. The only exception being disobedience to a divine command. And we see a great example of this in Acts chapter 5. The apostles were out, they were sharing the gospel, they were talking about uh, Christ and they were captured. They were brought before the high priest. They were instructed specifically not to be speaking about these things. And so they were incarcerated. And then an angel of the Lord appears, lets them out, and they go back to instructing people. And then they're captured again and they're before the high priest. And he basically says, what are you doing? We told you not to be speaking about these things before the people. And Peter's response is seen when he says we must obey God rather than men. And the same is true for us. We're called to obey God and and the government unless there's a conflict of interest then we're to follow the Lord. Many of you are familiar with what just took place and I'm not sure if it went all the way to the Supreme Court with Hobby Lobby it went all the way to the Supreme Court, and they, they ruled in favor. Basically, Hobby Lobby, which is, claims to be a, a Christian uh, company, organization, they were being 
challenged because they would not provide health insurance benefits for their employees that basically allowed babies to be aborted. And so they weren't going to provide that type of insurance. And so they came under attack. It ended up going to court, and they lobbied for their hobby lobbied um, for their position in court, and and they won, and they won. They took a stand, and it was a big deal. Al Mohler was talking about it in his blog. It was an amazing testimony of God's faithfulness to people who are willing to take a stand for His name. And you know what? It's going to happen. It's, it's going to happen for you and I. I'll give you one way that it's already approaching us. Did you know that the Supreme Court in Canada just uh, passed a law that it is a hate crime if you speak against homosexuality or tell somebody that it is sin to live in such a lifestyle? It's passed. It's already been taking place. It's already been true in European countries. And now it just takes place, it took place in, in Canada. And who's next? Where's it coming? And so that means that you and I, whenever we have the opportunity and, uh, to, to stand boldly for the truth and, and, and to say that um, God does not um, in, endorse this lifestyle, that God calls people to repent from that lifestyle, it's going to cost us something. And take us away. Take us away. You, you're going to have to make a stand. Are you going to be willing to take a stand? Now, for application's sake and considering all the laws in the U.S. Constitution, there's plenty of application to propose. But in light of recent events, I want to highlight one major point first. And young people, I want your attention on this one specifically. If a police officer pulls you over or gets behind you in, in their vehicle, you pull over. If a police officer asks you to do something that doesn't involve breaking the law, you obey their instruction. That's it. You, you, you obey them. God has called us to obey them. And quite honestly, I'm to the point now where if I got pulled over and he asked me to get out of the car, I'm getting out of the car. If he asked me to stand on one leg and hop, I'm going to stand on one leg and hop. If he asked me to repeat the alphabet backwards, I'm going to repeat it. Listen, they get tested enough. I know my dad was a police officer. You guys have heard me share it before. And it's a thankless profession. It really is. And they put their lives on the line. And I'm not saying that every police officer is a good police officer. I'm not having you associate with whether or not uh, what we're called to obey on whether they're a good cop, bad cop. The reality is the, the authority that they represent. We all get that, right? And so let's, let's let our testimony shine before them. Let's honor them. Let's obey them. Let's comply with them. And that means that if you get pulled over because you don't have your seatbelt on or you're driving a little too fast, I'm guilty. You get pulled over sometimes and you, you, it means that we comply. We don't lie. That's, that's our testimony. They get enough lies thrown at them from the world. 
And the same is true if you're called to jury duty or to serve the community in some fashion. It, is it convenient to get called for jury duty? <laughs> is it? It's not. It's not. But, but it's an opportunity that God has given for us to serve. And, and you know what? It's so important that Christians, and sometimes there are cases, big-time cases, where a Christian on the, the jury is going to be the difference maker. The, the big difference maker. And so there are some of these things which are big deals, which involve us uh, submitting to police officers, some, you know, going to court for big-time cases. And then there's things that, are, that might seem trivial, but there's something that the state asks us to do. If the state of California wants us to conserve water, then let's make it our best effort as believers to conserve water. If it's electricity, then it's electricity. Let's not be wasteful. Let's be good stewards, good testimonies. If they want us to use paper bags instead of plastic, I got I got no beef. I, I hate when the handles break. I think we're all there, right? It's like I even notice you go to Trader Joe's now, and the first thing they do is they put two bags. I was like, man, as you go through two bags, wrong. He's like, oh, dude, I don't want the handles to break on you, man. It's like, oh, thanks a lot. Good look, good looking out. But these are simple ways that we can comply and be obedient. And God gives us seven reminders so that your testimony as a citizen can glorify him. The first reminder is to make it your testimony to be submissive. The second reminder, make it your testimony to be obedient. Reminder number three, make it your testimony to be prepared. Look at the end of verse one. Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, and then it says this, to be ready for every good deed. The third reminder is to be ready, which features the common state of Greek verb, to be. And so it's describing a state of being. It demands continual action, pointing to a lifestyle readiness. The adjective ready points to the prepositional phrase for every good deed. And this phrase is thrown forward in the clause for emphasis. And this is the exact expression that Titus already used in Titus 1.16 when he was speaking of the false teachers and he used it in a negative sense. He described them as being worthless for any good deed. And in contrast, the believer's life is to stand ready and prepared to undertake any and every good deed. Paul continues the theme of good deeds which remains constant in this letter. And by using the singular form every... Okay, instead of all, instead of the plural form, all, Paul lays the stress upon each individual good work which demands readiness to perform whatever good deed might be called for in any given circumstance. Recently, our girls were watching one, a, a cartoon on TV. It's a real treat for them to um, watch shows. They always refer to them as movies. You know, they want to watch a movie. Um, and so they were watching uh, a, a program, and there was a little girl that was in this one. I don't even know what it was called. Victoria will probably know what it was called. But due to some magic spell, basically there was a little girl who um, received the gift of obedience. And as a result, she was um, unable to, to disobey. So when, whenever any...
anyone would ask her to do something, she would do it, right? She would just respond in obedience. And there were some, you know, it required her to do many things against her will. And so there were, in the end, it, it revealed lessons to her about the importance of serving others, all right? That was the, I think, what they were aiming for. But listen, as believers, and all the parents in the room were like, yeah, sign us up for that magic formula program. <laughs> we'll take some. But, but listen, as, as believers, we have so, something so much greater, so much more powerful than any magic formula. We got the divine presence and the divine assistance of God the Holy Spirit functioning in our lives that allows us to be ready and zealous and eager for every good work. And there are real people with real problems in our community. There are people who are, are suffering. There are needs that come up. And I've been so blessed just to even see the testimonies of some in our church, especially those that have worked with emancipated youth and those who really have had no family structure whatsoever and those who have seen the blessing and know the blessing of loving, caring family have reached out to, to people. And, and so that's just an example of what the Apostle Paul is aiming for. He's referring to a sincere, loving eagerness to serve others. No matter how hostile the society around us may be, we are to be good to those whose lives intersect with ours. And Galatians 6.10 says this, while we have the opportunity, right? We live on this side of the cross. We have the opportunity. We are to do good to all men, especially to those who are of the household of faith, right? So, yeah, there are things that, and we bless each other, and there are ways that we serve each other in the church all the time, but it, it, it isn't just limited to that. It's, it's to all men. My neighbor across the street, his name's Daniel. He goes to Calvary Chapel, and he was out sharing uh, gospel tracts, and he noticed in the shopping plaza, he, he noticed that there was a, a group, there was some community effort that was taking place where they were selling car washes to raise money for something. So he's like, oh, there's a lot of people over there. So he went over there, and he, he, he engaged in conversation. And you know what he did? He bought a car wash, and it gave him the opportunity to talk and share the gospel with the person that that he was able to purchase the car wash from and and they shared the reason why they were out there and then he wanted to share the reason why he was out there talk about a win win situation and there are oftentimes many ways for you and I as believers to show our support publicly for our communities and the lord can use these specific opportunities really for us to be gospel lights to to, to people, and I think that sometimes, and I have to be even cautious in my own mind sometimes, you know, because you know we're, we want to see the church um, um, impacted, we want to see the church cared for, right? And sometimes there can be so much emphasis placed on that that we can lose sight. I can be short-sighted. I'm sharing that with you. I can be short-sighted of the reality of the community that's around me and the love and the care that they need and the. The, the lostness of the people that are there. And so it can be a great opportunity for us to step up when there's a cancer walk for 
one of our neighbors who is terminally ill with cancer. Or maybe it's somebody that passed and they, they want to have a walk for them. Maybe it's a fundraiser for the public library. A, a, a car wash, like we talked about just moments ago, for uh, a public school, a food drive for veterans, or for a local mission. These are opportunities that the Lord opens up for us right, right there. And we can build that bridge to them. You know, yet No, they're not specifically connected to the church, but they can be. Not meaning that they're going to become a ministry of the church, but they can serve as an opportunity for us to build a bridge to them, to share the gospel, to talk and, and, and encourage them for, for what they're doing, but then talk to them about the greatest need that we all have by being supportive and being prepared for every good work. This allows us to put our testimonies on display for them to see. All right, we're studying seven reminders so that your testimony as a citizen can glorify God. The first reminder, make it your testimony to be submissive, then to be obedient. Reminder number three, make it your testimony to be prepared for every good work. And we're now making a transition from verse one to verse two. And I like the insight that one pastor shared. He said in verse one, it's speaking to how we relate to the state. And when we get to verse 2, it's how we come across to the lost. And that was, like, that was helpful, just even in my study. It allowed me to see um, how the, the, the scope even broadens out. How we relate to the state, verse 1. How we come across to the lost, in verse 2. And Paul's initial concern for the believer's conduct toward the governing authorities um, is what was taking place in verse 1. And now he's concerned with those relations more broadly to individual people in the unbelieving society society in verse 2. And there's debate amongst commentators on where this transition takes place. Does being ready for every good deed in verse 1 still refer specifically to the believer's response to the state? Or does it apply to his response to all peoples and thus he should be, it should be read with the instructions of verse 2? I, I didn't, I wasn't able to draw a conclusive answer and nor were many other, <laughs> many other people. But what we do know is this, that it's clear that God is concerned for the believer's attitude and conduct toward both the state, its officials, and the broader non-believing society. And why he clearly has the former in view in verse 2 and the latter in mind when it mentions all men in, in verse 2, the transition seems to take place in that phrase in verse 1. Thus, be ready for every good deed likely includes both the state specifically and the broader society more generally. So I think it, it, it can, it's sandwiched in between. And I think that that's a good perspective. It, it's specifically pointing to the state and then it, it broadens out to society more general, generally. Well, reminder number four is this. Make it your testimony not to malign. Look at the beginning of verse 2. It says, to malign no one in the NAS. And the ESV says, to speak evil of no one. This command, um, or, or excuse me, it's an infinitive in the Greek, is again reflecting continuous or ongoing action. It's the Greek word blasphemeo. It's from where we get our English word to blaspheme. And so it can also mean to curse speak evil, slander, or insult. And this is the same verb used 
of blasphemy of God in 1 Timothy 1.20. But commonly it's used more of slandering a person like in Romans 3.8 or 1 Corinthians 10.30, which is how it's being used here. And I'll just say this. Aren't we all glad that those midterm elections are over? Are we not? Just, I, I mean, it was impossible to turn on a radio station or a, a TV station without hearing what? It, it was one candidate just constantly maligning the other candidate and the banter going back and forth. It gets pretty ugly in the political uh, arena. Yet what's ironic is that most voters respond to those who do less criticism and talk more positively about the changes that they're going to make. Why is that? Because even the world recognizes the ugliness of maligning someone. And one commentator said, slander not lest God be slandered on your account. Good word. Slander not lest God be slandered on your account. It's always important for us to keep in mind on who it is that we represent. And it's so easy for us to be critical of others. And this exhortation is very timely coming at Christmas. As you stand in the eternal line, that that line that's going to be a mile long at the post office, just to send your Christmas packages out. Or if you're standing in line somewhere else, maybe it's going to be at the airport and you're going to be waiting in long holiday lines for the God-ordained government, secure TSA agents to make sure that everybody's secure and no explosives or weapons are coming on the flight. And you're going to have an opportunity. And the temptation is going to come. Because that line sometimes will seem like it's not going anywhere. And it can be easy to malign. It can be easy to insult and to be critical. And you'll hear it, right? You'll, you'll hear people in line who, who start to talk. You know what? An opportunity for you to shine, my friend. You get up to the, the front of the line and you, you, you can thank them for serving you. See, I can't imagine what it's like facing an endless line of unappreciative people. I, I it just... It happens all the time, just even at Walmart. There's one lady, we've invited her to church a bunch of times. She has a Catholic background. We're hoping that she's going to come one day. Her name is actually Mercy. Uh, Beautiful name. Older woman at at Walmart. But same thing, you know, we get up to the the, the front, and we, we we just try to encourage her. The line just never ends. It just never ends, and they're constantly in eyes or, you know, you get this this shifting back and forth (laughs) it's just like and we probably drive those people nuts because we're talking to to people but that we're we're helping them back we're actually trying to speed up but but you know what engage them find a way to smile express your gratitude thank them allow kindness to show up be a way to glorify christ when you do so Well, after offering a negative reminder at the beginning of verse 2, Paul now offers a positive reminder. Reminder number 5, make it your testimony to be peaceable. Look at the middle of verse 2. It says to be peaceable and gentle. Our fifth reminder, again, uses the state of verb, to be, which again points to the 
the state of being that would be used to describe a Christian's ongoing testimony. And the verb is actually placed in between two adjectives. The first is peaceable, and the second is gentle, which will serve as our sixth reminder. And the adjective peaceable is also used in tandem with uh, gentle when Paul lists out the qualifications for overseers in 1 Timothy 3.3. And the word literally means not to fight. And this is why the ESV translates it to avoid quarreling or stated positively as it is here, to be peaceable. It was frightening to turn on the news and to see some of the situations that took place when people were out for Black Friday. I mean, they do it sometimes in a comical sense, but they, they, were, they showed actual brawls taking place as people um, were cutting in front of people even outside the store, right? There's even battles taking place over the parking spaces. And then there's a battle to stand in line before the store opens. And then it's a free-for-all once you get in the store. And they showed people, it was like a 42-inch TV, and there were like three men, like, wrestling over this box. Like, you know, like, just, like, you're, you're not getting it. I'm taking it. It's coming home with me. It's the last one. Frightening. It was even more frightening to watch the news last week, right? And to see what took place in Ferguson as it turned into a war zone with protesters. And God's word calls us to make it our testimony to be peaceable as citizens. And Romans 12:18 even says this, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. And this means being both a peacekeeper by maintaining peace and being a peacemaker if all of a sudden disorder arises, it presents us with an opportunity to try to restore peace. And, and so it may mean just even passing up on the, the Black Friday bargains. Think about it. There's no merchandise. There's no amount of money worth saving to compromise our testimony in Christ. Is there? There isn't. There just isn't. And being peaceable may mean deferring to a parking space or allowing someone to go ahead of you in line during the shopping frenzy during the holiday season. Being peaceable may mean using wisdom and providing extra measures of grace when around family members due to tension and strains in relationships over the holiday season. Right? As you think about your life, are there any relationships that are not peaceable? How might the Lord have you promote peace given your specific situation? It is so important to the Lord that in Matthew 5, in verse 23, when we're we're worshiping, right? We're coming to God to, to worship. He says to lay down your sacrifice. Lay it down and to go make things right with that brother who has something against you. Go Go make it right. It matters to the Lord. He, 
He wants unity in the body of Christ because it glorifies Him and it also allows us to serve as strong testimonies when we're peaceable in a public setting. Well, reminder number six is this. Make it your testimony to be gentle. The word gentle is also governed by that same state of verb to be as mentioned under our last point. It is a compound word made up of the words over and reasonable. When you're gentle, you're over-reasonable. It has been referred to as sweet reasonableness, reflecting an attitude that does not hold grudges, but always gives others the benefit of any doubt. Imagine holding, and some of you don't have to imagine because you're parents of an infant, holding a baby and your task is to put them down in the crib without causing them to awake and cry. You must do so, how? With absolute gentleness, right? Yeah, that, my wife is the master at that, by the way. I, I would wake Liam up every time. Even now I'm like, I'm using every muscle in my body to this. Slow, slow, slowly put him down. He wakes up. He wakes up. But, but, but that's the gentleness. That's a, such a good picture for us to keep in mind as we interact with, with people. Philippians 4, 5 says, Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. And this is how we're to handle people with care and tenderness. Gentleness is also a part of the ninefold fruit of the Holy Spirit that we see in Galatians 5.23. And the power of Christ through the gospel enables us to be gentle in situations that we would otherwise not be. Proverbs 15.1 shared this verse a number of times in previous messages. A harsh word stirs up strife. A gentle answer, a gentle answer turns away wrath. And it's been my experience that doing just about anything in a harsh manner, a harsh manner is going to cause you strife. Not just your speech. Anything done in a harsh way usually elicits a harsh response. I think that we saw this on full display even in the recent weeks in Ferguson. Again, being gentle in situations will not only minimize strife, but even more importantly, it will glorify God in your testimony as a citizen in this world. God gives you seven reminders in Titus 3, 1 and 2, so that your testimony as a citizen can glorify him. The first reminder, make it your testimony to be submissive. Reminder number two, your testimony to be obedient. Reminder number three, make it your testimony to be prepared for every good work. Reminder number four, make it your testimony not to malign. Reminder number five, make it your testimony to be peaceable. Number six, make it your testimony to be gentle. And reminder number seven is this, make it your testimony to be considerate. Look at the end of verse two. It says, showing every consideration for all men. And Paul closes this opening sentence in the Greek by using a participial phrase, showing every consideration. And it can also mean to demonstrate or prove something either by words or actions. And Paul just used this word moments earlier in Titus 2.10 when he said showing all good faith, exact same verb. And again, the present tense demands that this be the ongoing testimony of the believer. 
the specific thing to be shown is consideration, and it's to be directed toward all men. Not just those in your family. Not just your co-workers. Not just those who you know. Not just to those who are nice back to you. Not just to those people who like you. But consideration to all men. Consideration points to a humble and gentle attitude which bears up under offense with patient submissiveness and without a move toward revenge. Well, let's talk about the DMV. We can't possibly have a sermon on what it means to be a a good testimony as a public citizen and not talk about the DMV. Okay, many people think that the DMV stands for Department of Motor Vehicles. And those who have visited now understand that it actually means the damnation of miserable victims. That's what DMV stands for. The damnation of miserable victims. I'm, I'm serious. The DMV has been used as an agent of God to sanctify many of his people. It really has. And it all starts by design. You show up and you wait in line, massive line, to get a number so that you can wait in line again. Wow. I know what some of you are thinking right now. I know your minds. Well, Pastor John, did you know you could make an appointment online? I made the appointment online. And yeah, I got to wait in the shorter line. But still... Still, same thing. Wait in line, get a number. Wait in line again. And you're just sitting there, and there's this voice calling out letters with numbers E22, A17, G7. And it's like this eternal game of bingo going on, except it's damnation. Because nobody's winning, right? Nobody's, I mean, it'd be great if somebody just, I wanted to do that one time, was just jump up and yell, bingo, I got it, I got it. Got it. People would look at me like I'm crazy. And then when you finally get your number called, right? It seems like, you know, relief's in sight. You're, you go find the window that you're called specifically to you navigate around trying to find it. And you go up and you get greeted by, you know, the teller that sit. well, no, you, you don't, you don't get greeted, right? At least my experience was this. It was somebody who was staring. They were just looking down at their, their, their computer. And they, it was like they saw the shadow. Or they had like some sixth sense that they knew I was there. What do you have? What do you have? That was like, you know, I was just like, hello to you too. <laughs> I got a cold. You want it? No, mom, just kidding. That was old. That was the unsanctified John. Okay. No, but it was just like, wow. Just that, the, the, the entire environment is just, it's, it was discouraging. I, and, and you know what? My heart was prepared this time going in um, to the DMV to handle some vehicle stuff. And it, to me, or it's been my experience, that sometimes the whole world can feel like being in a giant DMV. The whole, the whole world. 
that there's really a lack of consideration for people in this world. It feels like we're living in a giant DMV. And maybe it's going to be Costco when you go to get in line, right? It's just, you know that experience too? You wait in line to get in the store. You wait in line to get your things from the aisle because the line's backed up on the aisle. Then you wait in line at checkout. Then you get finally get everything. And you're like, yes, free. And you get, got your receipt and you're going to the doorway. And then you run into that another huge line, right? Just like the DMV. I mean, it's just line after line. Well, I want to encourage you. God has ordained those opportunities for you to let your light shine. Rhymes, shine while you're in line. Shine, shine in line. Engage somebody. Smile with somebody. Talk to somebody. Share the gospel with somebody. You may have time to share your testimony, all your family history, and so much more. Beyond that, engage, engage. Well, just about everyone in America is aware of the tension that continues to take place in Ferguson, Missouri. And I'm not here to make any uh, political insights or to provide any legal insights about the case because I think we would all agree that there's probably a lot that we don't know about all that's taken place in the history of Ferguson. But I will share that when I found out um, about what was taking place as businesses were being burned and stores were being looted, police cars being flipped over, rocks being thrown at news anchors, threats and racial slurs being exchanged. My heart started to burn with different emotions. And many of them weren't spiritually healthy. They weren't. Perhaps you find yourself going through a similar experience. Think about, and you all have a mental picture of something that you saw, whether it was that police car on fire being flipped and turnover, whatever whatever image is in your mind and what you saw, think about it in contrast to what God's word provides. To be subject to rulers and authorities to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, to be gentle, showing every consideration for all men. The Lord used two things specifically to challenge my heart when I was struggling with the emotions that I was dealing with. One of the first things that he led me to do, and I, and I rejoice, I even shared this with my wife, I just prayed. I, just, I prayed for the Wilson family. I prayed for the Brown family. I, pr- I prayed for the police officers. And it just, the, the Lord used that in significant measure just to even calm my heart. And then um, he also used an article that I read online that was actually by a uh, a current NFL football player who plays for the New Orleans Saints, Benjamin Watson. And he wrote an article about the different emotions that he was experiencing as a result of all that was taking place. And he's a black man, and he had a unique perspective 
um, as he was sharing about how angry and frustrated and fearful and sad he was. But he ended his article in a very powerful way, and I want to read it for you so that you can hear exactly what he wrote. This is what he said when he made his final conclusion after sharing that he was angry, that he was frustrated, he was fearful, that he was saddened. He ended on this note. He said, I'm encouraged because ultimately the problem is not a skin problem. It's a sin problem. Sin is the reason we rebel against authority. Sin is the reason we abuse our authority. Sin is the reason we are racist, prejudiced, and lie to cover for our own. Sin is the reason we riot, loot, and burn. But I'm encouraged. Because God has provided a solution for sin through his son, Jesus. And with it come a transformed heart and mind. One that's capable of looking past the outward and seeing what's truly important in every human being. The cure for the Michael Brown, Trayvon Martin, Tamir Rice, and Eric Garner tragedies is not education or exposure. It's the gospel. So finally, I'm encouraged because the gospel gives mankind hope. And in the end, we, what we witnessed in Ferguson serves as a reminder for us that this world needs Christ and the gospel. That's, what it, it, that's the, the takeaway. That's, that's the blessing. That's the call to us, that reminder. And our passage reveals reminders that we can now fulfill because we have been saved for this very purpose through the gospel. Our hearts have been changed. In fact, our next verse sets up the contrast of our previous lives without Christ before Paul exalts the grace of God again, helping us to see how this is connected to the good works again that God has prepared for us. And this is what we have in store for us next week. We need to talk about the grace of God again in contrast. So I hope that's an encouragement to you this morning. Went a little bit extra, a little bit overtime because we don't have a quipping hour. I knew that, all right? So thank you uh, for giving me a little bit more time to cover two verses. We haven't covered two verses in, in quite some time. We've been going one verse at a time. So we actually, we got two uh, knocked out this morning. I hope they bless you. I hope they encourage your heart, prepare you for the holiday season, and allow you as we're out in the public to put our lives on display so that the Lord Jesus Christ receives much, much glory. Please pray with me. Father, we are blessed by the lessons that you teach us. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for the reality of redemption in our lives. That if not for your grace, we could easily be flipping cop cars over ourselves. We could be looting stores. We could be bringing shame. And our testimonies, even as a public citizen, could be 
distorted and crippled, but you have given us life. You have taken us out of our dead estate, our crippled lives. And you've given us the ability now to walk with you, to honor you, to magnify your name. And Lord, what a privilege. It was just such a sweet service today. Just even the songs that we sang that featured this reality that we've been cleansed by your blood, that we have complete forgiveness from you because you have brought us to the place where we have repented. We no longer want to live for the things of this world, but we trust completely in Christ for salvation and true life has begun for us. And we rejoice. And I pray for those that are still wanting. I pray for those in our family that we'll have an opportunity to witness in the coming weeks. Witness too. We continue to lift up those in Ferguson. We pray for the Wilson families, for the Brown families, for all those who are really going to have an environment for their holidays that will be unpleasant, that they would turn to you, that they would find their hope in you, that they would see the gospel as the bright shining light that can allow them to have a new start, a new, a new lease on life, an opportunity to be redeemed and to live for your namesake. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that you have done that very thing for us and that you would continue to allow us to sharpen each other, to encourage one another, to stimulate one another to love and good deeds here in our local body. We praise you again for this time. We look forward to next week where we can continue our study in your word. We ask that you'll bless the remainder of our morning with sweet fellowship in your name. We pray. Amen.